0: So I'm Edna Sessin, I'm director of the Center, and I'd like to welcome you to this meeting on what mathematics can tell us about the mind and the brain. The idea for this roundtable was uh, generated during a dinner conversation with um, Sylvan Capel, who's head of the uh, Mathematics uh, Institute at uh, NYU and uh, Charles Marmor, who's a psychiatrist and uh, chairman of the department at NYU. So they thought that this would be a very timely subject for us to uh, have a roundtable about at the Helix Center, and I want to thank them for it. Um, Just briefly, we have a number of programs uh, set up already for the fall, and I'd like to mention them. I think the first one after this is a program on why economists disagree which will be on october 13th and we'll have economists from the two sides of the uh, intellectual or scientific uh, areas discussing it the following day on sunday and is it at 2:30 we will have a program called Poetry and Jazz, where we have a poet and a jazz musician who will uh, play, recite, and discuss the relationship between poetry and jazz. Following that, in October, over a Friday and a Saturday, we'll have two round tables. One of them uh, is going to be on, I wrote the exact title somewhere, Uh, life and movement and uh, the other would be on male-male competition globalization war and violence these two roundtables have been organized and proposed by Maxine Schitz-Johnson who's an emeritus professor of philosophy of science from uh, Oregon University and who was here uh, during the Philoctetes days and did two or three programs for us Uh, so uh, our website is up, and uh, one of the ideas that has always propelled us is that these roundtables should not just end here, but there should be an ongoing conversation taking place after that, afterwards. And we were not set up before for it, and I think we are. And maybe Rob can say what, what you do uh, for that.
1: Yes, thank you, Ed. Uh, first of all, go to www.thehelixcenter.org or helixcenter.org, and that will access the uh, website. And uh, there's a, a, a link to sign up, after which you can um, participate in conversations on the, on the website. You can either join... Uh, a topic, a question that has already been posed by someone else related to one of the uh, events here, or you can propose a, a, a new subject um, for discussion. Uh, the other thing is that uh, if you want to comment on uh, anything that's uh, going on here, you can uh, uh, Twitter at uh, the Helix Center.
2: Okay.
0: So as I said, today's subject has a very easy title but it is a rather complicated uh, subject. And uh, we have people who uh, I think can discuss it, uh, who are leaders in this field. Uh, I will start with Ned Block who's been who was a number of times. He's the silver professor of philosophy, psychology, and neural science at NYU. He came to NYU from MIT where he was chair of the philosophy program there. He works in philosophy of mind and foundations of neuroscience and cognitive science. Uh, Barr Erman Traut who is unfortunately unable to be here today but he's with us via Skype. Uh, is distinguished university professor of computational biology and professor of mathematics at the university of pittsburgh he's written more than two hundred papers in math philosophy physics and math biology physics and neuroscience and um, he has a software called x p p a u t for the simulation of an analysis of dynamical systems and has written a number of books and one of them is available here for you if you would like to purchase it. Uh, Ken Miller is professor, Department of Neuroscience, Department of Physiology, and Center for Neurological Bi- ne- Theoretical Neurobiology at Columbia University. He's co-director of the Swar- Schwartz Program in Theoretical Neurobiology and its Center of teori- Theoretical Neuroscience. Uh, is also co-director of its Neurobiology and Behavior graduate program. He serves as vice chair of the Department of Neuroscience. He's a founding editor of the Journal of Computational Neuroscience, recipient of the Alfred Peace Loan Research Fellowship, Searle Scholars Award, Dell Web Biology Fellowship, National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship, and author of many articles. Um, All of the people have books, and you can see them after the meeting. Uh, George Rickey Jr. is associate professor with tenure and head of the Laboratory of Biological Modeling at the Rockefeller University, and a senior fellow of the Neurosciences Institute. He developed the first microprocessor-controlled lab instruments, an X-ray camera, and his Fourier synthesis software was used to solve many protein structures worldwide. Beginning in the 70s, his interest has to turn to problems of pattern recognition, perceptual categorization, and motor control, which he studies primarily through computer simulations of relevant neuronal systems. Xiao Jing Wang, am I pronouncing it wrong? <laughs> he is professor of neurobiology, adjunct professor of physics, applied mathematics, and psychology, director of the Schwartz Program in Theoretical Neuroscience at the Yale University. He's a theoretical neuroscientist studying executive and cognitive function, whose group has pioneered neural circuit models of the prefrontal cortex, discovering a specific neural circuit mechanism for decision- making. Uh, he is also studying, I believe, schizophrenia. Dr. Wang was a recipient of the Alfred P. Sloan Fellow National Science Foundation Career Award and John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellow is that it? Okay. So that's it and we can get going. <laughs>
3: Probably a very naive scientist's point of view, which um, uh, I'm sure the philosophers will correct me. But um, essentially, the the mind and comes from the brain, and the brain is part of the natural world, and mathematics describes the natural world. Um, mathematics was developed, you know, or at least a lot of mathematics was developed in the study of physics, of you know the trajectories of uh, moving objects and uh, how collections of objects uh, new properties emerge at a higher level, Um, and in essence, studying the mind by studying the brain is no different. We're studying a physical system that uh, has uh, many, many levels, uh, many interacting parts at each level, leading to new phenomena at the next level, and at the next, from the the molecules to the cells to the circuits and the circuit behavior to the, ultimately, to the animal's behavior, Um, and what we use math for is to Understand how these interacting pieces um, produce the phenomena that we see. Uh, and in particular, I think one of the biggest things that we do is we're studying things at one level, like we have a lot of cells connected with some circuitry, and they have some functional responses. Say, I study visual cortex, and so as a visual image comes in, the, the neurons have certain responses to the the visual world, which have been well studied, and but how do those responses, with all of their details and complexity, emerge out of the circuit? What are the circuit motifs that you know the interactions between the cells that lead to this behavior emerging? And then, so these these multi-level one behavior at one level emerging from another level, from interaction of in many things at another level, is sort of the essence of what we try to understand as we try to understand the brain, uh, and ultimately all the elements of our minds are things that we would like to identify as emergent properties of of, uh, what neurons do uh, in the same sense. And so mathematics is a tool of of taking um, objects that you might say are blindly interacting. They're interacting according to some rules. Uh, The rules might have some intelligence, but, you know, they're interacting according to some rules and understanding what emerges out of them. Um, And that's... So, to the extent to which you know the mind is, is an emanation of the natural physical world, mathematics is a way to understand what happens there.
2: Could, could I pick, go on from what you said because it's, it's a perfect introduction, I think. I'd like to make a the, distinction that I would like the audience to go home with between math as a tool for studying the brain, which involves both statistics, you know physics and chemistry, as you've pointed out how we use computers to simulate what goes on with neurons, with ions in the brain, with, uh, it, you know, with blood flow and all of these things. And on the other hand, the question of whether mathematics should have a role in our theories about cognition and things at a higher level like the, the question of consciousness and free will and all these things where it's not so obvious that there's a connection I think the the place where a connection does come in, and and Ned Block knows something about this, is the theory called functionalism, which says that the material that the brain is made out of really doesn't matter. It's what the functions that the various parts carry out and how they interact with each other. Uh, And if we call that a kind of mathematics, because to work out in detail what it implies does involve some mathematics, then I think one has to be very careful not to go too far. And what we see today is this um, metaphor, if you will, that the brain is a kind of computer. You know, it started out with the first uh, electronic computers after the war, which were called electronic brains in the papers and magazines of that era. And you still hear that phrase once in a while. And so we have a whole field where every paper you read now says this piece of cortex computes this and this does that. And I think ex post facto, you can't deny that. As signals come in, there are uh, electric signals on neurons, they go into some area, some stuff happens, and other electrical signals come out. And ex post facto, that you can describe that as a computation. And. Uh, but what that hides is how did it get to work that way? What part did evolution play and especially ontogeny, by which I mean the development of the individual interacting with the world. And that's why some of us think it's important to work not just with totally abstract mathematical models but things like robots actually moving around in the world and receiving visual input from cameras and you know trying to do something like an animal or a human would do in the, in the real world. So. Uh, I'll shut up now, I've taken enough time, but but I just think it's very important to distinguish between those two kinds of areas where we use math as a theory and and as a tool, and the the consequences are different.
4: So let me say something about this. So um, in the areas in which I work, the the metaphor of the brain as a computer has faded. Um, I think its heyday was the 80s and maybe... Well, it's still
2: every day in neuroscience journals.
4: Okay, but here's the problem. The, one of the, the hallmarks of, of, uh, of a computer is that there can be many ways of realizing of making the same computational structure so it's you know commonly said in introductory books about computation that you know you could do a computation with um, using a, a le- an electronic computer you could do the same computation using something with wheels and pulleys and gears you could make a hydraulic, um set up that that uses the same computational principles the same program at some level of abstraction but does it completely differently but The upshot of a lot of neuroscience is that it's not so easy to see how you could do the same computation differently. Mm -hmm. Multiple realizability seems to be fading away when we see the complexity of the electrochemical processes. So neurons influence other neurons by sending out chemicals. Um, And those chemicals diffuse, um, and um, it's not clear that the computational picture is the right way of describing that.
2: Yeah, that's
5: just what I'm saying. I would agree with that to some extent, but the first, the the guy right before that, I don't know who's speaking at anything, Mm. but um, (laughs) at any given time. But, you know, the the, robots and and external world and and internal world, I mean, I don't see how that is is the of the use of mathematics. Math is all those. And to address a recent point, um, you know, um, he, He has a good point. The brain is a computer. In fact, if you go back, the brain has been many things. It was back in Aristotle's time. I think it was pumps and water and things like that and you know more recently i've heard you know i heard a talk that that it was all done by um quantum mechanics and things like that so whatever the newest theory is is what the brain is and it 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 always bugs me because i think the brain is what it is and and math is just a way as as ken said of of taking lots of abstract boxes and arrows that experimentalists put together at least to me I'm a hardened reductionist. Um, and it's just a way of taking boxes and arrows and um, using it to, you know, it's a sort of an existence proof that this is the right mechanism. So I, 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 I'm I too stupid to ask why, but I, I'm a big fan of how. Let me just add uh, a few things
6: about uh, what has been said. Um, so, you know, I guess uh, one reason that math is really important in neuroscience is that neuroscience is one of the uh, fields in biology that are the most quantitative, experimentally. So the, the, the neurophysiology, the measurements, the experiments are really quantitative, it has had a very long tradition of very quantitative uh, you know, uh, measurements and uh, analysis. And that actually is important to bear in mind, and that, that's why we are capable Of using mathematical models and theory in this field. Um, And and, and, uh, it's clear already, I guess, from what uh, we heard, that uh, uh, we don't really know how to conceptualize the brain. Uh, You know, we have all kinds of analogies, uh, but uh, certainly. When you really compare brain with computer, uh, they are just so dramatically different. right? So what computer is really great at, like making zillions of computations very quickly, we're not very good at. What we are really wonderful at, like recognizing objects, recognizing a face in a crowd, uh, in a fuzzy, foggy kind of uh, environment, computer is incapable of doing. Today's computer, right? So there's dramatically different, um, you know, uh, dramatic differences between the brain and and, and the and the comp, uh, and, the, uh, and the computers as we know today. Uh, but on the other hand, clearly, if not consciousness, uh, we need to think about the computation. What kind of computations that brain does? Uh, so that's you know another way of thinking about the connection between the brain and, and, and the mathematics.
4: I'm not sure that computation is going to turn out to be so important. You know, comp- you, as a number of people have m- mentioned, there are different levels of description, and computation would be important at one level but not at another. A standard example of this is the explanation of why a, um, a rigid square peg doesn't go through a hole in a rigid board which can be done on the basis of the rigidity of the materials and the geometry of the uh, hole and the, and the peg. So at that level, there really isn't anything that would be called computation. Of course, if you go to the elementary particle level, mm-hmm. then you have a, you could get an explanation which is computational, but which obscures the simple level of description. So it's not always clear. So I don't think you can, unless you trivialize the notion of computation by assuming that anything is a computation. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I know, guess. It's a sort of commonplace that you could regard a river as computing the rate of erosion of its banks by, as an analog <laughs> model of itself. It's a computer that, that computes its own rate of erosion. So you can trivialize the notion of computation, but I don't think we can just assume a priori that the right way to think about uh, the mind is going to be a computational level, uh, a computational way at the the most abstract level.
6: That's fair. I guess you could say. So what's the alternative? I guess one alternative would be what really matters is uh, behavior and thought, mm-hmm. maybe mental life and our behavior, right? Uh, can you describe those things without talking about the computation? Well, as the
4: guy on the screen said, we're always using the latest technology um, Mm -hmm. to describe the mind. And there's a famous paper by uh, neuroscientist John Marshall that goes into the history of this, and uh, he mentioned a few cases. But, you know, uh, uh, at the time of the popularity of the catapult, People's theory of vision was that there's little little catapults on objects that catapult a tiny simulacrum of the object into your eye, mm-hmm. and then of course the famous um, um, uh, telephone exchange model of the brain at the, in the early days of telephones. So you know the computer is a very um, 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 notable artifact, and and if you trivialize the notion of computation, we can describe everything as a computer. Um, but that doesn't mean that, comp- that we know now that computation is going to be important um, in well, describing, for example, consciousness.
3: Well, I think um, I mean computer is a loaded word because it means uh, yeah. you know the things that we have on our on our desk. <coughs> clearly, they don't anything like the brain does. Uh, but computation. I mean, I think the reason to use a word like that, uh, I mean, maybe it's a matter of semantics and defining what we mean by it, but, um, you know, the heart, its biological function, obviously, is to make sure that blood uh, and nutrition, you know, gets to every cell in the body. Um, And so it has to be a very good pump and has to react, you know, pump more and less under different circumstances. The, The brain is a piece of meat that's sitting inside of our head. Whose function is in some way to uh, take in information about the sensory world and guide behavior toward the animals, you know, to hold the animals' goals and guide behavior toward those goals. And to me, computation means that you have to process information. And that's the job of the brain. Um, and that's all that computation means to me. But it's very clearly. You know, it's that's not what the heart does. That's not what the liver does. That's what the brain is for. Um, It's for processing the information coming in from the sensory world, and processing. You know, having a built-in sense of your of the animal's goals and. F- working out the behaviors that are gonna achieve those goals. Uh, that's a lot of information processing, and that's the reason for me for the word computation. And, it doesn't, it can, doesn't process and, the information anything like a computer does, it, can, but it has can, to and process it. Information computation
4: are two different things. Look, is the it. Is <laughs> a diffusion of a chemical, is that computation? It can be described <laughs> computationally, but is it yeah, a computation? No, it's the it's, diffusion of a chemical on the brain. <laughs> So, I don't see, you know, it just seems to me to be trivializing the issue to call that computation. Yeah. Well, what, what is I have computation? That I, I just, mean, that's,
5: that's, all right. that's all the question. I mean, people, Stephen Wolfram called a cellular automata um, computation. And, you know, I, I think we're we're getting hung up on semantics here. Uh-huh. And, you um, I do want to say that the the metaphor of a computer or computation has got to be really careful because when we do a computation on our computer, uh, if we type the same thing, we get the same response every time. And the, the, the really cool thing about the brain is the fact that you don't. And that turns out to be really important, right? Because if you get the same thing every time, then you can't learn. You can't change. You can't adapt. And that's one real difference, I think. Uh, the metaphor of a computer and, and, and a real brain is that it, it you know, you don't get the same thing every time you do something.
2: Yeah. What, what, what I wanted to add to what Ken said, and it fits right with what you said, is I, I have a slogan, the function of the brain is not to process information, it is to create information. And there's a distinction, really trying to draw it between Process in the sense of an algorithm or a pre-planned design, where you you know perform operations on numerical quantities and get some result, but but it's this renewal, this learning, this uh, uh, this initialization, if you will, of the of the infant who comes into the world not doing any of these things and somehow figures out not because a programmer comes in and twe- tweaks some neurons around to make it work right, but just by having experience in the world, and and that's what uh, the industrial what I say the you know the desktop computer doesn 't have, and, and as long as we understand that then yeah we 're fine to say, as Ken does, um, you know the visual cortex you know computes edges and that sort of thing sure well, I, actually i
3: don 't know what it computes i think we 're very naive about what it computes, but it 's clearly taking in the visual world and ultimately leading us to open our eyes and see people and chairs and you know, lights and, and to see objects and their relationships and to know a lot about them. But exactly what it does, confused to do that, I don't think we really know.
6: Yeah. I guess I would just add that, uh, you know, it's, it's true that when you ask, you know, Ourselves, so ask people. You know, uh, in daily lives, you think, you know, I don't really always think in terms of computation. I think, you know, what's my goal? What I need to do today? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you start with a goal. You make decisions in order to achieve your goal, and you seek actively information from the environment. Mm-hmm. In, you know, and sometimes you have to process you know information forced on you. But but it's an active process that you you know, the main thing is to try to achieve your goals. Right, the behavior goes. So in that sense, it's not you know it's different from the uh, certainly very different from um, information processing from the computer perspective.
5: And it's also always trying to predict. I mean, you 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 get partial information and you anticipate. Nobody, um, you know, you don't you you watch somebody to ball and they're automatically nobody nobody is born with Newton's. there but you you figure out how to do this because you're trying to predict trajectories um, and you're predicting what somebody's going to say there's all kinds of cool psychophysics experiments that can exploit this and that's another thing a computer really doesn't do very well um, is sort of um, extrapolate to the future because we have to do that to interact with the real world
3: So one, in terms of the question of, of the role of mathematics, I'd like to just you know return to the idea of yeah, emergence. <laughs> <Ken. Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but but to the idea of emergence, because I think, I mean, for me, you know, where theory plays, and, and theory is, is basically building models, which are mathematical and computer models, to try to put together the pieces to figure out how they explain phenomena, um, and, and I, so it's. It, When I say theory, you could could substitute math if you like. Um, And what uh, the role of theory, the the biggest role in in trying to understand the brain, uh, has to do with with this idea of properties emerging at one level out of the complexity at another level. Um, I mean, physics has uh, pioneered some thinking about that kind of problem in terms of, you know, understanding how you take a lot of water a lot of molecules and they end up having properties of being liquid and having a certain volume and a pressure and so how the interactions at one level lead to these at a very different level these qualities like being liquid and being viscous that you know in terms of molecule would have no meaning but it emerges out of the interaction of many many molecules Um, but the apparatus that physics developed is pretty specialized to those situations and and, um, uh, the brain is just uh, unbelievably more complex, of course. And, but, but always what we're, you know, where we really, where theory really gives you insight is when you know a lot of things at one level and you know a lot of things at the next level. Uh, you, know, you know how these neurons respond to this situation and you know something about what the neurons are made of and how they're connected to each other. But you have no idea how you get from here to there. And you try to put them together in terms of what you know uh, you know you have some ideas and you you find suddenly a principle, say of how a circuit can be organized, so that these properties these these actual responses to the world up here will emerge from these neurons down here um, and and but again and again, at every level um, it 's that process of uh, new phenomena. Emerging out of the interactions of men, a complex interaction of many things at a completely different level, uh, that's, I think, the most striking point where where math is absolutely critical. You can't do it without math. And,
5: and the best example of that is one of the. I mean, one of the best examples is the first example of that, the Hodgkin-Huxley theory, which basically took a hypothesis about channels and gates and and used that. Equations down very simple, just four differential equations, and we're able to completely explain the action potential of the squid. That was the first real example of mathematics doing something very specific. And you know, I think things have continued on like that. I, that's exactly what you know. It's it's what Ken said. You, how do you take pieces of stuff and get emergent properties? The only way you can do that is with theory. And the only way you can do that is, and the only way you can do that kind of theory is with mathematics. And that's the big difference between neuroscience and, say, physics. Is every physics experiment is driven by theory, and no neuroscience experiments almost are ever driven by theory. And uh, (laughs) it's just a kind of an immature science so far, I think. Uh,
4: I disagree that uh, neuroscience. I disagree that mm-hmm. neuroscience isn't driven by theory. Certainly in the visual system, most okay. of or at least a great deal of what we know, was derived from the psychology of the visual system that was discovered before we knew the neuroscience of it. You know, the three kinds of cones, uh, the the process system—that was all discovered by visual psychologists well before we understood the neural
2: underpinnings. Yeah. And gestalt psychologists okay. who, who contributed things about what's salient in a visual scene and so forth. But it's, it's <laughs> yeah, but well, I push you- it. Uh,
6: I was or not. making
5: a kind of hard case there. I, I don't completely agree with you guys. It, it, it's just not, you know, not completely, but.
6: <laughs> so but. maybe, maybe so I guess one way, as Ken and Bart um, articulated, uh, is uh, to understand how you explain behavior at some level in terms of the interactions and dynamics uh, at the level below, underneath it. Um, so in a way, I guess my PhD advisor used to say, the world is like onion. There are many layers. And really, you, you get satisfaction as a scientist by being able to explain something in terms of what's more fundamental maybe underneath it. Uh, there's another aspect of it that really explains why mathematics is really uh, important for neuroscience. That is, the nerve system has a lot of feedback loops. Okay. Uh, and there's positive feedback loops, so this neuron excites the other neuron that excites back this neuron. Or oh, there's inhibitory, you know, uh, negative feedback loops. Like any, you know, system with a lot of feedback loops, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen mm-hmm. when you do something, right, somewhere. Um, so I guess one example I like to give. Uh, it's, uh, you, know, you know, these days people talk about the connectivity, right? Uh, uh, and so if you know connectivity, the connectome um, among genes or among neurons, uh, you, it's very important information. You, you really learn a lot by knowing the anatomy and the connectivity. But the, the example I'm going to give you illustrates why that's not enough to, to predict behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay? Imagine I give you a circuit with just two neurons that we know inhibit each other. Okay, neuron one inhibits neuron two, and neuron two inhibits neuron one. What are you going to predict? What's going to be the behavior you're going to get? Well, for a very long time, people think the behavior would be half center oscillator. So neuron one is up, suppresses neuron two, and then for some reason later on, this one goes up, the other one goes down. Okay, that's the motif for generating movements. So if you walk left, Right, left, right. Okay, so that's the circuit uh, to get this kind of pattern generation. But it turns out that when you really analyze the dynamics of this kind of circuit, you can have some other way uh, of behavior. Yeah. Uh, you could have, for example, neuron one being up all the time and always suppressing neuron two. So you have a switch. Okay, you give a little kick for neuron two. That switches neuron one up and uh, neuron two up and suppresses neuron one. So that you know gives you a mechanism to build a switch. Does that make sense? And it turns out that surprisingly, in fact, under some conditions, even if those two neurons inhibit each other, sometimes they are completely in sync. So they go up together, they go down together, they go up together, right? And this is a very counterintuitive kind of uh, behavior uh, of perfect synchrony by mutual inhibition. Turns out to be, you know... Uh, actually happening in real life in the brain. And this is the mechanism now, one of the mechanisms at least for explaining uh, brain waves that we all see you know, when you do EEG measurements, for example. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very, very interesting example where only by looking at the dynamics, with the help of math, we can really figure out what's possible in this kind of system with feedback loops.
3: And, and actually, let me just build on that because um, say in that case, you know the the idea of them working together is essentially they both fire, they both suppress each other right. and then they both recover together and then they're active, they both fire, they both suppress each other so it gives you a new intuition you study the math, maybe you hadn't thought of that before but you write down the equation you study them and you discover this other regime where, where things are going together instead of opposite, which is all you really thought of and then once the math has shown you this new regime now I can explain it to you without any equations uh, it, so the math often acts like a scaffolding uh, out of which we could you know, that we use t- to gain an intuitive understanding that we can then express without the math and that's at least when I really feel like I understand something uh, but, oh, but, the math is, but the math is incredibly rich I mean the, the full details are in there but as you study it and you start to see it behave in ways you didn't expect and then you start to try to work out why exactly is it doing that you ultimately come up with a story you can tell and when you can tell yourself a story that explains it, which is a new intuition that you didn't have before, but you, you discovered it by, by you know, working on the math and, and figuring out why it's doing what it's doing, you know, that's, that's the, the scaffolding of math leading to the intuitive understanding.
0: So, are you saying that it's not that you have an intuition and then the math can explain it? But you are saying that the math itself creates the
3: intuition. It lead, well, by, by banging on the math and the behaviors that you don't understand and figuring out why they're doing what they're doing, you gain so, new intuitions, yeah. yeah.
4: One thing to be it's important in this is that the correct math at one level may be quite different from the correct math at another level. And the example of the computer is a good case. So, you know, the computer operates by these binary elements. But of course, at a deeper level, they're not binary at all. They, you know, they've fluctuated fluctuations of voltage, yeah. but at the computational level we want to we have to think of them as binary in order to understand the computation.
0: So if I understand correctly, I mean, math has always had a place in neurophysiology because when you talked about electric currents and voltages and so on, so you always had a kind of high school math or college math in, when I went to medical school, that was there. But what you are saying is that what we are doing is not just understanding what happens, let's say, when a current goes along a nerve, how can we explain it physically and mathematically? But that mathematical ideas allow us to understand things that without them, we couldn't even imagine or dare. Absolutely. Oh. Yep, yep,
5: yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, how if you press your eye, press your hands and... Press what? Bulbs, oh, yeah. And you'll start to see little flashes, After a while you'll start to see you know geometric patterns like checkerboards flashing and things like that so why you know what is what is going on there and you know it's not obvious that that you know this is all probably in the visual cortex but what what's the mechanism and and math kind of gives you this umbrella and for example the example that al jing gave of two mutually inhibitory neurons one guy making one guy a switch okay that's a switch and it's completely symmetric one guy can be up one guy, the other guy can be up okay that's an example the simplest example of what, what we'll call spontaneous pattern formation and what math does is give you this sort of broad brush in which to explain lots and lots of patterns that you see for example Ken has done lots of work on things called ocular dominance patterns in the visual cortex and it's all based, and and I've done stuff on the fast. Phosph- I just told you about the the flicker and and pressing your eyeballs, and they all work with the same basic principle of um, I guess we call it, can hat that there's excitation, um, or also we could call it Reaganomics, where you help the guy that. Um, you help your buddies, and then you inhibit everybody else. Um. <laughs> but it's called lack inhibition. I forgot to say that. You know, that, that that's a... <laughs> It's been known from the horseshoe crab and all the way up, and it pretty much can do. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a it's a very straightforward concept, but it allows you to explain so many things. And there's it's all under sort of a there's a very broad mathematical theory that covers all these cases.
2: Well, are you done, Bard? I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I'm sorry. No, no. I, I, What what, uh, I'm thinking back something Ned said way back at the beginning about different multiple solutions to the same problem and just looking at the math alone and never mind the neuroscience we we find that uh, there are different kinds of math we can use to apply to a neural system or a neural network if I'll use that word and so we find in our field that sometimes people get stuck in one or another of these and maybe a conversation like this can can help. What I'm thinking of is um, I edited a book uh, where some authors uh, with a lot of different subjects but uh, there were authors in there who felt that most of the neural modeling that people are doing today is all wrong because it divides neurons up into little pieces called um, compartmental models where you say everything that's going on in this little bit is the same and then it's hooked to another little bit by a resistor and that simplifies the computation. But that's not really right because the voltage along the membrane changes uh, in a a continuous manner and so you really should use differential equations. And so what you end up is pages and pages of of so-called Green's function solutions and things and the most complicated system these guys have been able to work out is two neurons talking to each other and and you get a lot of insight from that and you get a lot of insight from understanding how the diameter of the cable as it changes as you get farther away from the cell body affects you know how the voltage is changing and and you can go on like that and spend a whole career doing that and meanwhile you haven't gone to the next level up as, as, as Ken and many of us are interested in. So it behooves all of us who are in this field I think to be aware of these different levels and be willing to Move up and down among them, as befits the particular problem of interest. Maybe what I said is super obvious. I, I, well, actually, so,
3: yeah, to, yeah. The, the, to pick up on that, um, one thing that I think maybe is maybe surprising to people not in the field is that um, it's not the case that you put every detail into your model.
2: Yeah. Um, right.
3: If you do, you're All is lost. You don't have any hope at all because um, the the there's a couple of reasons. So one is that there's there's many 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 details. You know exactly what kinds of channels do you have in the membrane, and what 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 are the the physical properties of each of these channels, and how do they respond in which way, and what's their density, uh, and on and on and on. How many? How exactly do your dendrites spread out in space? Most of those details we don't really know. We know that that there are such things and that they have some structure and we have maybe some range in which they all live, but uh, so the more of these details you put in, the more unconstrained by data, unconstrained by data freedom you put into your model, the more unconstrained by data complexity you put into your model. And and if your model then goes and does something, how are you going to figure out why it does it when there's so many unconstrained details? Um, And so part of the the real art of modeling is the art of simplification, the art of of knowing what are the key relationships that I want to model. And then I want to understand what emerges. (laughs) And I'm gonna throw all the rest away uh, to simplify to just understand what do these dynamics of these simple entities that I'm going to model lead to, and can I identify that? Can I then understand what's going on in the brain uh, with this simplification, and then in some way that, that's testable? That says, oh, well, if this simple structure leads to all this stuff, then it also should lead to this other stuff people haven't looked at. So let's go and measure that. Um, somebody. Uh, Uh, I think it's, well, Idan Segev is another theoretical neuroscientist, and I think maybe he was quoting Picasso. I've kind of lost track of the quotes, but they talked about modeling as uh, the lie that reveals the truth. Mm -hmm. Because you start out with a lie. You start out with a simple You have to. Um, And there's actually a big to-do in the field right now. Um, There's something called uh, the Blue Brain Project of Henry Markham in Switzerland, where his claim and belief is that he's going to put every detail into the computer and out is going to merge the brain and then we're going to understand the brain and I have to say every theoretical neuroscientist I know thinks that is nuts including myself Um, because something will happen God knows why God knows what it depends on, God knows which detail was important and which wasn't Uh, maybe you can maneuver it to do things like the brain maybe you can't, I mean at the moment they they have some very basic behavior things excite and inhibit other things. I mean, nothing very specific, and they say, "See, we replicated the brain." But when you throw in every detail, I mean, the essence of understanding that that, that you know, when we build this scaffold, and then eventually I can tell you a story. That story can't have a billion moving parts in it because our brains can't handle it, and so we don't understand it. Now, if if we knew what those billion moving parts were down to the Physical details. Then, like physicists, where they do know those billion moving parts, you know, in real detail, they can just put it in the computer and see what it does, because they really have control over all of that complexity from the data. But we don't, um, and so we have to simplify, and we have to come to stories of how some interaction at one level leads to an interaction at another level. So that I, you know, I do models where very often, sometimes I use more complicated models, but very often. I use models where I take a neuron, which is you know, a spatially extended object with uh, dendrites that are you know, extending over hundreds of microns uh, that are communicating with each other in complicated ways, receiving all kinds of inputs at different places, um, and integrating that input in complicated ways. And I describe it as a point neuron that just takes a lot of input, sums them, does a certain nonlinearity to them. But then I study how these interactions, who's connected to who, the circuitry among these point neurons what behavior that leads to. And lo and behold, you discover things that tell you a lot, give you new insight into how the brain works. Now we've thrown away a lot of of detail of integration, and that worries me. Maybe those details of integration, when we put them in, are gonna radically change things. But the fact that you come up with an insight that unifies an awful lot of behavior in a simple way, and it's testable and the tests bear out, that gives me a lot of confidence, although not a certainty, that, that all those details are not going to overturn what I've learned by studying things at this level.
4: Well, so you learn both by what you can explain and what you can't. So if you can't explain something, it shows that the detail was important.
3: Well, no, because you don't know. Maybe you just missed it, right? You, know, you don't know why you can't. You know, Negative results. <laughs> when you can, then you've really got your hands on something.
5: Mm-hmm. It's hard to get non-existence proof in these things yeah Mm -hmm. the other thing i think this is building what ken said is you know you start with something simple and you see what it does, a port neuron or whatever and then you use that to build up your model i think i i want to point the other side of the coin we've been talking a lot about what mathematics can do for neuroscience but but the other thing is what can neuroscience do for mathematics and you know there's one of these big questions or one question that of us are very interested in is if you've got many, many detailed models of neurons hooked together, is there a principled way you make a, a, a simplified model out of that? And, and people call this uh, trying to derive a mean theory from, um, from some sort of spiky neurons. Xiao Jing has done a lot of this. Um, I've done some of this. I, I don't know about the other guys. Ken might have. But again, that this requires new mathematics as well and difficult mathematics because there's noise and stochasticity and things like that. So I think, you know, there's this great positive feedback between neuroscience and math and a lot of nice mathematics has come out of trying to answer some, even some of the simplest neuroscience questions.
4: We only heard about every other word of
3: somebody. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's cutting out a lot. Uh, yeah. I guess. Oh, well. <laughs>
5: oh, so <you> wanted to... <laughs> yeah, it seems to be bad, right? I don't know what's the matter. Um, is it my connection?
3: <laughs> Who knows? We don't know.
5: <laughs> okay.
3: You were going to. Oh, well. <laughs> but keep trying. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> hearing, I'm hearing enough that I can make sense of it, but maybe it's because I know I know some of the words that are being left out.
5: (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh,
6: Maybe just recap a little bit what Bart was saying. uh, Basically, he's saying that, uh, you know, I guess rephrasing it, you could say, you know, in the past or even today, physics is really a major source of mathematics, right? Uh, A lot of physics problems, you know, particle physics especially, for example, has led to many new branches in math. And maybe today, biological sciences, especially neuroscience, uh, in fact, uh, is going to provide a new source for you know, problems and maybe ideas uh, that will inspire new math. Uh, so one of the specific example Bart mentioned is the so-called mean field theory. Mm-hmm. How do you go from uh, most biologically based action potential kind of neural models and neural network models to uh, uh, population description, okay, where you say you know for each little group of neurons, uh, you know they all within this group, all the neurons are more or less doing the same thing. I, I, what I really care about is the dynamics of the activity, the overall population activity of this neuron group. Uh, so can I? find a systematic way, mathematical way, to derive, you know, more biophysically based the spiking neural model to a population description. That's one example. And That's what I said.
5: I said. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, Essentially. <laughs> I guess I, I
6: just add, it's really true. People actually feel like um, today, there, there is going to be really a lot of interesting questions, in part from neuroscience, that's going to inspire uh, new math. So for example, not just neuroscience, of course. I guess I would just mention one example is uh, you know, the, the kind of dynamics that really live in very, very high dimensional space. Okay, so if you think about, you know, really the nerve system, describe it in certain ways, you basically need the zillions of variables, zillions of activity variables for neurons or neural populations. So you have to describe the dynamics in a very high-dimensional space, and you know the, the math of dynamics in very high-dimensional space is true in neuroscience and maybe true in some other uh, scientific branches, given the data we now have today. So, and I think that's one of the examples where. Uh, you know, this, this science, including neuroscience,
2: drives mass. Yeah. I can give another example that I just ran into on a thesis committee of a physics student at Rockefeller uh, named Thibault Taillet-Fumier, who was interested, What well, it comes down to the random walk problem, but expressed in terms of, of a neuron. You have a neuron, some noise sources, the membrane potential is fluctuating around, and a question you'd like to ask is, how long do you expect it will be before one of those fluctuations goes over threshold and the neuron fires. And so if if you look at the fluctuations as what is called a random walk in other areas of biology or chemistry, uh, you know, this is a problem where a lot of work has been done, but uh, he was able by looking at it from the point of view of a a neuroscience problem to produce some new mathematics that that adds to that whole body of work. So there's another, just an example. I think a very,
3: a very beautiful example of, of making some new math is uh, some work done by Fred Wolf and his group in Germany um, that was recently published in Science, where um, without they're, they're trying to understand certain patterns that form on the, in the arrangement of the neurons in the visual cortex, of what neurons. Neurons in the primary visual cortex are responsive to light, dark edges of a certain orientation, and they care very much <coughs> about the orientation. If you change the orientation of <coughs> the edge by 20 or 30 degrees, they, they may stop responding. And the what orientation they prefer is laid out in a way that sort of rotates periodically as you move across the cortex, so that all the orientations are represented. But it's laid out in a in a particular kind of pattern uh, and Fred, so in, in physics, there's uh, quite a lot of literature on pattern formation, on how you know interactions among chemicals uh, may lead to some kind of stripy behavior and so forth, to, to some pattern emerging. And there's a very uh, established literature of how you can go about analyzing those processes. Um, those have always dealt with... Uh, with real-valued variables, though. So I don't know if you all know about real numbers and complex numbers. Com- complex numbers are uh, important part of mathematics. But uh, in the pattern formation literature, just because these are physical variables, these have all been real-valued uh, variables that are organizing into patterns. It turns out that the proper description of these patterns, you, you need to use complex-valued variables. And that required Fred to really revise uh, or extend the existing uh, Methodology on pattern formation into that case, and then, and he also had to bring another extension to it, which is in physics, um, all of the interactions are local; things just talk to their neighbors. They they're not able to talk to somebody way over here uh, directly because there's no long-range connections between molecules. Say, uh, but in among neurons, there are long-range connections, and so he had to bring in the role of long-range connections as well into how this influences pattern formation. And the, the upshot is, that, I mean, he spent 10 or 15 years developing this theory layer by layer by layer by layer. And the great triumph was uh, he was able to predict that uh, the structure uh, of these maps, it should have a certain signature, which is the, the density of, of uh, points where all orientations meet, which are called pinwheels or singularities. And that that density in, in the right unit should be the number pi. Um, and they went and they measured it. And so people had measured, and to do that, they had to develop new quantitative methods of measuring the density of pinwheels because there's always a lot of noise and it depends on how you filter things. And they had to find ways of filtering out the noise that didn't filter out the signal, which people, people hadn't had good ways of measuring pinwheel density before. And so they developed new mathematics for that. And people had studied maybe a few maps at a time, but they studied 100 maps with 10,000 singularities in order to get good enough statistics, and they found that the density was pi to within plus or minus 2%, meaning that, and what that, what that meant for us uh, in terms of the physics of it, or in terms of what happened, how do these patterns emerge, is basically this number pi, this organization that's characterized by this, this number pi, emerges very naturally out of self-organization, meaning it's not, Every cell isn't told by genetics what orientation to develop. Rather, they develop by interacting with one another. Maybe they excite their neighbors, and they may have some long-range suppression. And so they're developing through interaction, and this self-organization among all these moving parts leads to this pattern. And the fact that he was able to show that you get this very robust prediction of pi under that scenario, and then he went and measured it, and that's what was there. And it was there across three different species that are separated by hundreds of millions of years in evolution, and in fact separated so far that their common ancestor had such a tiny visual cortex that it probably didn't have these patterns at all, meaning that it had to evolve, that this pie pattern had to evolve twice uh, independently. Well that would happen naturally if it's just this, if it happens by the self-organization process. If you think it's genetically specified, that would be very hard to explain. So I think this was a huge triumph. It was an advance in the math and an advance in our understanding of the biology.
4: An argument that the pinwheel structure isn't um, genetically determined, at least not in any simple way, is uh, uh, McGonkrew uh, ferrets where he was able to set up something where they use their auditory cortex to perceive visually, uh-huh. able to rewire the ferrets at a very early age. They also show that, that that auditory cortex shows that pinwheel structure.
3: Although, actually, it does it does show pinwheels, but I don't think it's that, that, that characteristic structure that, that Fred has identified. So
4: I see, so it's different pinwheels.
3: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a lot, it's, yeah, I think it's different. I'm not absolutely certain of that, but I think it's different. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we seem to be at a dead moment, so I'll just change the subject slightly and say uh, there's still plenty of room for new progress in this whole field and the the diffusion of um, molecules has been mentioned a couple of times. I just want to say um, I suggested in a book chapter some time ago that in studying the brain, we we needed to combine not just what neurons are doing, but what molecules are doing and, and proposed uh, using a kind of finite element modeling, which is what engineers do who build skyscrapers and bridges, you know, looking at the physics of how little blocks of matter interact under pressure and, and this was rejected by referees as being ridiculous, although I thought it might have something to do, for example, with studying tumors in the brain and how a tumor might press on another part of the brain and cause something not to function because pressure might be changing the yeah, uh, activity of ion channels or something. But I just saw uh, in a recent document that I'm reading, which is, uh, well, it's a PhD thesis, that uh, this is now being applied, this kind of idea in the eye, where people are working on retinal prostheses, you know, and. the the idea there is to uh, in a blind person who's lost the visual receptors it's known that the so-called retinal ganglion cells the cells that send the output of the retina back to the brain those are often still functional even when the receptors are not so the person is blind but that part of the eye is good so the proposal and, and it's been tried now in you know in real life by different groups you know is to stick some sort of array of electrodes into the back of the eye and stimulate these retinal ganglion cells to provide some sort of <coughs> prosthetic vision. And so this thesis that I'm reading uh, has done just, um, he of course never saw my proposal, it must have come out of his own ideas, but uh, the idea of making a finite element model of the fluid in the eye be- and and then using the laws of, um, uh, you know, the, lo- the laws of electricity and magnetism to figure out how when you put a little current into a, an electrode how does that spread through that fluid and which ganglion cells does it affect uh, so you can figure out what's the best way to compute what uh, now in a computer you know what stimulus to put into that electrode array to get the most natural vision so there's a, a very new kind of extension of what we've all been doing, looking at just one neuron talking to another and, and taking into account this ionic environment. And I think, you know, this is a very positive thing to uh, be happening right now. You may know more about this than I do. I, I, don't
5: I, I think, you know, you bring up, mm-hmm. okay, so it seems we've sort of switched a little yeah. bit to pathology, yeah. I guess, because this is a bad retina. Yeah. Um, and, Can you guys hear me, every other word, or do I have to speak twice, twice, or or, or, am okay? Yeah, right now. Okay, okay. All right. So, um, you know, let me give you an example of where math can be very helpful Hmm. in, in pathologies is one of the classic mechanisms for Parkinson's disease is something called deep brain stimulation. And the problem with deep brain stimulation is it's really, really stupid. It just does the same thing over and over again and it doesn't depend on any feedback or anything else but there's a number of groups um there's groups in germany and there's groups um in the u.s that have developed much smarter um much smarter versions of deep brain stimulation based on you writing down some for what happens in the basal ganglia, whether you treat them as oscillators or as excitatory-inhibitory networks, and by using that, they've been able to come up with techniques for deep brain stimulation. And this is this could not be have done; could not have been done without the math predicting this method would work but um, much more efficient ways of doing deep brain stimulation that, that won't come on until there's a sense that something's wrong. And when it comes on, it does it much more efficiently. Instead of jolting it with you know hundreds of um, millivolts of stuff, they can do things in, in, in much lower levels and therefore uh, improve things like battery life and also reduce damage a great deal to the brain.
2: Yeah, you know, some of that work is going on at Rockefeller too in the lab of Donald Pfaff, who I want to mention because he's on the board of this organization <laughs> that's sponsoring us today. Uh, and He has a student doing deep brain stimulation in a mouse model of, of traumatic brain injury. And they're they're not, unfor- perhaps unfortunately, not doing what you say in terms of the, the math of what the network is doing, but what they have done is to uh, try out different modes of stimulation, you know, whether it's a, a, a random or a chaotic or a, or a uh, you know, a pure oscillatory, uh, regular oscillation, and do these different modes of stimulation produce better results in that mouse model. So again, this is something kind of new that's going on in just a few places and uh, very positive, I think
6: especially for this audience. Maybe it's uh, also worth mentioning something related. So actually I'm on, on my way to uh, to a kind of short summer school on uh, so-called computational psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So there are several places, uh, including Yale and, and Germany and uh, UCL in London, um, where people feel like if uh, we have some we are starting to have some understanding about the circuit mechanisms of brain structures, especially the prefrontal cortex, that are implicated in mental disorders. Uh, so, if we know something about the circuitry in this part of the brain, so it's not all the brains are really the same, okay? So, we know that there are early sensory areas that are, you know, optimized for information processing, and then there are some. You know, kind of more cognitive areas that are more implicated in decision making and control uh, of our behavior. So, prefrontal cortex is one. You know the best example, perhaps, of cognitive type circuitry that's implicated in many uh, mental illness uh, disorder types. So, um, so th- there's a sense that you know. And again, this systems are very complex to just uh, try to understand by intuition alone, and the circuit modeling uh, has helped together with experimentation to kind of tease out you know what really might go uh, go go. Um, go on in normal subjects as well as in uh, patients, like schizophrenic patients, or um, uh, autism, for example. I mean, we know a bit about schizophrenia, maybe um, much less, very little still, but there's something about the schizophrenia, but uh, even less on autism, I think. But still, um, the idea is that if, if uh, mathematics the really, you know, biologically-based model of prefrontal cortex, if such a thing can be done, would provide a very useful platform to really explore what may go wrong if this goes down, if that goes up, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, at the secretary level, um, and, and if that's the case, it really provides a tool for us to uh, also try to understand what really underlines cognitive deficits in, in mental disorders.
3: And there's a, this is just hypothesis and speculation, but, um, there are it, it, so the the cerebral cortex is you know the the, the main the stuff that makes us uh, smart. It's uh, it's what it's uh, peculiar to mammals. The, the part of the brain that evolves specifically in mammals to all the folded up stuff you see on the surface, and it's what you see with and hear with and think with, and pretty much i think it 's fair to say that your whole conscious life is computed there i don 't want to say where what consciousness is, but let 's say whatever does enter consciousness is computed there um, and uh, it has what has always fascinated anyone who tries to study cortex is that it looks so much the same, no matter what it 's doing, whether it 's doing. You know, here's a piece that's, that's analyzing the visual scene. Here's a piece that's analyzing touch. Here's a piece that's analyzing audition. Here's a piece that's involved in motor planning and, and, uh, and thinking and, uh, you know, speaking. And there are differences. Uh, there definitely are differences. But the first thing that strikes you is how much they look alike, how much they seem to be the same architecture, the same processing unit. Uh, and so it makes all of us dream, at least, that there is a fundamental processing unit uh, that was invented in mammalian evolution that's very good at doing something which, when we really understand it, we'll be able to fill in what that something is, but something like being able to take a a varying world, find invariant structure in it, represent that invariant structure associatively, and then do that again and again and again. Um, So there's also a hypothesis that some diseases like schizophrenia or autism uh, might be not specifically cognitive deficits to the cortex, specifically deficits in you know particular cognitive regions, but they might be deficits in that processing unit um, that therefore would manifest not only in higher order cognitive processing but you would also see it in low level visual processing um, and indeed in schizophrenia, for example um, there 's something in the, in, in in much of sensory cortex called surround suppression it's a lateral inhibition that Bard was talking about before which is that uh, if I'm if I have a neuron that responds to some visual stimulus here then what's around it the context can suppress the responses somewhat uh, and um, it turns out that uh, the people with schizophrenia have much weaker surround suppression in primary visual cortex um, and you can imagine that's that some kind of you know, that that could be some kind of global deficit in integrating uh, you know, local information here and local information there, putting it together, that perhaps, in some way that I couldn't explain to you, might add up to the cognitive deficits that we see in schizophrenia when that deficit is happening in the right brain region. Uh, so Would we don't know, but, but a... it's possible that these are diseases of the cortical processing unit and not of very specific cognitive functions. Would
0: that kind of... A problem with the processing unit also be able to explain why schizophrenia is sometimes a deteriorating condition? Um, One would imagine if once that processing is that way, then it should stay the same
3: way, just... Yes, I, I, no, it's a good question. You know, I I can't say that I've thought out all the implications of this really deep into schizophrenia. Uh, I've been struck by the fact that there are these very low level uh, deficiencies in schizophrenia, and, and in certain ways, you know, in autism, it's been shown that uh, at low-level sensory areas, there's much more variability in the processing. The the mean response to a given stimulus is the same, but there's much more variability in the response. So that it gives me the hint that there are maybe more general processing problems in the cortex, but. I don't know enough to at that level of detail to answer there, that. There's like lots the of
5: very yeah. specific deficits in in especially in the prefrontal cortex, in the um, inhibitory circuitry. Um, the some of the um, some of the the receptors become slower. Um, they become weaker. Um, it may be compensation because there's also deficits in the excitatory stuff. So I think it's what uh, basically what Ken was saying is that that it's it's, it's this basic circuitry, this seven-layer or six or seven-layer structure, um, and, and there's something that goes wrong with. And, and as Ken pointed out, you know, if if you weaken some of these and, and things like Xiao Jing, if the if you weaken these inhibitory things, for example, which inhibitory guys are what kind keep everything controlled. I mean, the cortex is. Highly recurrent highly excited toward recurrent and because of that any kind of um, perturbation of this controlling inhibition can lead to all kinds of um, dramatic pathologies activity where you don't want it not being able to hold activity um, um spread of activity where it shouldn't go that's that's you know for example epilepsy um and spontaneous activity when it's not there um, for example, hallucinations that are some of the, the negative things that happen with, or positive things that happen with, so yeah, I think, you know, and, and math can really help us tear apart how this, these, these deficits in, in ambition or deficit in the circuitry can lead to some sort of macroscopic measure. For example, one thing that they found Associated with cognitive deficits in schizophrenia, um, people have greatly reduced certain kinds of rhythms in the brain that, that um, Xiao Jing alluded to. These so ones that are related to um, mutual certain inhibition and generating these 40 to 60 hertz rhythms in the brain, mm. and and those those rhythms are shown to be diminished in schizophrenics also. So you know, math can kind of connect these these. Um, deficits in circuitry with the macroscopic rhythms and, and, and hopefully some of the cognitive deficits.
6: So, so you know, to relate to what Bart and King just said, I guess one way to, you know, to view this is, is to say, yeah, there's a canonical general layout. There's a general, you know, organization of say cerebral cortex and that's uh, universal let's say okay it's it's true in early sensory areas like primary visual cortex as well as prefrontal cortex Uh, but what's interesting is that there could be some quantitative differences right and so to use the same analogy as uh, used before you have the same matter same material which can be either in the liquid state or solid state depending on the temperature Right? So you could say just by changing something, temperature in a graded fashion, sometimes by a small amount, if you are near the, you know, uh, the, um, uh, the, the solidification critical point, uh, just really a small change of certain things will uh, give you a very different kind of behavior. Right? And that's how I see it, like you know, comparing sensory area versus the prefrontal cortex okay so uh, and that really is uh, very important and uh, very interesting to to realize Uh, and then then you can ask even by the same amount of change of certain things due to genetic defect or due to environmental you know insult uh, what's the impact you know, sensory system versus a more cognitive type, type of system. So, by understanding the, the the operational mode, the behavior of each uh, system, we can, you know, indeed uh, address, you know, look at, examine how, you know, uh, abnormalities can occur in, in each of the areas. Yeah.
2: Let me ask Ken a question, because y- you emphasize the, the unity of structure across the cortex, but of course, as you well know, and we all do, there's differences, uh, you know, more than 100 years ago, Brodman described all these numbered areas and they have slight differences in the, the population of different cell types or the lengths of the dendrites or various, uh, I'm sure you didn't mean to denigrate that, but, but just do you feel that uh, those anatomical differences that are easily visible can be related, in fact, to the functional differences that Shaoxing is talking about? Or, oh, I think that uh, are, are, you little know, little should about. we be looking at whether we can understand why those differences are there or is it just sort of peripheral and unimportant? Uh, um, accidental, I mean to say.
7: No,
3: I mean, I think, ultimately, we need to understand those variations. I yeah. guess, I, I very much take X, XJ's point. Sorry, we call XJ. Um, so that's what i used to calling him. Uh, I very much take XJ's point that um, you know this, there may be there may be some commonality, but it may be operating in a different regime. And in particular, uh, one one difference that's very well known is that uh, in in primary sensory cortex, the excitatory neurons make much fewer. Synapses onto each other, so an individual neuron in, in yeah. primary v, primary visual cortex might receive 700 excitatory synapses, but in prefrontal cortex it might receive 20,000 excitatory synapses, and that has an obvious, theoretically, what you expect from that is is that. Um, the, the place with 20,000 excitatory synapses is much more likely to be able to generate its own activity in the absence of a stimulus, which, in fact, is one of the big differences between frontal cortex and primary sensory cortex, where without a stimulus, there's some background activity going on, but it doesn't generate the kinds of, of uh, activity in stimulus. But frontal cortex has to generate its own activity; it's, it's got to make motor plans and make the make the animal go. So that's one example of a, you know. A numerical change that leads to a, very, a qualitative change in, in your operating regime. And you may have a lot of the same structure underneath. I'm sure that that's probably, you know, if we got down to every one of Broadman's areas, every one of them would have some specialization that gives us some little, some I mean, every every specialization and structure has got to be there for some specialization and function, and we don't know what it is. But yeah, I prefer
2: preserved it, so it must do something. Yeah. yeah,
3: I prefer right now to try to I, focus on you know, well, what is the basic operation of this unit rather than uh, before we tackle all of its variations. Because we're not. But I here. do think between I, sensory and motor, those are really two fundamentally different things that we need to each understand.
5: Well, how about I want to add something like a more uh, basic if point. I can, is yeah, it, the, it's I, you know, th- it's yeah. also who you're talking to and who talks to you that really matters? so the prefrontal cortex gets information from lots of other different things than the visual cortex so even though the the hardware is the same the connectivity and i guess we come back to the old connect story is quite different and i think that can also be a big reason why there's a difference in functionality i mean it's just simply that you're getting di- you know the the, the CPUs are the same. It's just the 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 memory and who you're talking to is completely different.
2: Yeah, oh, right. On.
4: Oh, yeah. I think you know the the point you were making before about we don't know what the units are yet. Look, I, I, I take the unit story very seriously. For one thing, it seems evolutionarily plausible. We know that um, there's plenty of reason to think that the you know, increase in uh, cortex that we have from earlier stages is just duplication. You know, We have all these areas that seem to be basically descended from retinas that... You know, the, the more cortex, you make another retina. Um, so there does seem to be some reason to think that um, uh, the, the, from an evolutionary point of view, it's a matter of just, you know, duplication. Uh, but it, does, it seems amazing that we don't know what these units are. Well, they're
3: incredible. I mean, How many neurons in such a unit would yeah, you well, say? It's a, what's the size of the unit? So what we think of as... What a- do you mean by... it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the unit is a totally hypothetical <laughs> speculative object right now, but, but um, you know, the, what, what's, what's commonly thought, going back to the work of Hubel and Wiesel 40, 50 years ago, uh, is that about a square millimeter of cortex is sort of processing a local, a local bit of information, and that contains about 100,000 neurons. Um, and then... When you consider though that these different units are talking to each other, because you don't only process local information, you're mod- modulated by your context. Uh, you know, so how big should uh, should we take the processing unit to be? But that that gives you a. I've asked beginning. the same
4: question to other neuroscientists, mm-hmm. and sometimes I get the answer 10,000 neurons. I mean, uh, well, um, it just shows how hypothetical it is if we don't yes. even if we if we don't have. And, uh, uh, methods of estimating that. Um, well, I mean, we know how
3: many neurons there are in a given area, but the question yeah. is, how big an area should we call a unit? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: He has well,
0: to. There be there like is a great. So oh. I'd like to move it towards question time, if possible. Sure.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah. So, Any questions? There's please, one back there. The
0: you have to go to the microphone. we can't have it recorded so it, so you can just walk through here
8: so much of what goes on in the brain depends on pattern recognition all the time, every, every perception that we make, every thought that we have. And the whole world of metaphor depends on a more sophisticated pattern recognition. Now, my simple question is, is it conceivable that there is some mathematical expression of whatever matches one pattern to another? Because we can't work without it. That's my question. I think
3: that's the holy grail for understanding cortex. I mean, I I think we will get there, but we're not there yet. Um,
4: So just to to say something about what we know about pattern recognition, what we don't know. So um, um, it was shown a long time ago that pigeons can recognize patterns that we have not been able to make a machine that can recognize. So for example, um, it was shown, I think, 30 years ago, that you, so this was done by a famous, uh, maybe infamous uh, Harvard psychologist named Herrnstein He got a <laughs> bunch of pictures from the um, National Geographic that, some of which had p- uh, people or parts of people in them. Sometimes they were like, uh, you know, a tree trunk with some fingers on one side and others that had no people in them or no parts of people and he got pigeons. To, he trained pigeons so that they could recognize the difference between a picture that had a person or a part of a person, and they did very well better than some of the students um, in his lab um, uh, because actually all they're flying things they could do better in aerial, aerial photographic uh, they could do better in the aerial analysis. We, can't, we don't have a, any kind of artificial uh, uh, pattern recognizer that can do that
3: we don't know how it's done So, but I do, I do believe that we, when we understand it, we will understand it mathematically. That is what. Well, well, yeah. That uh, until you can describe mathematically how you take the image, and what you do with it, in order to recognize the pattern in it, um, then we won't understand that. And I think yep. we will understand it. We're going to. My own feeling is that we're not going to figure it out by by trying to invent algorithms. We're going to figure it out by studying how nature did it, which is how our brains do it. Because yeah. uh, I don't think we're smart enough to reinvent that ourselves. I think we have to uh, discover it's it. It's an
4: important point that, um, that, I agree with what you just said, but it it, it reveals a real um, a tectonic shift in this field where there was a time when people thought they could discover it, ju- they could discover these- um, Just by thinking about um, it. Just by thinking about it. Yeah. You know, now you you know um,
3: yeah, no, the, the analogy I'd like to make is that, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is the weirdest, Theory. I mean, you you get used to it and it makes sense to you, but never in a billion years would anybody have figured it out just by thinking about it. Physicists had to knock their heads on atoms and the weird way that atoms behave and knock their heads again and again and again for decades until they finally somehow knocked their heads enough that they managed to get to the point of quantum mechanics. And then it started explaining things. And I, I think understanding how the brain does
2: Puts, you know instantly recognizes things and underst- I think it's in the same category. Yeah. I know there's a line over here, but I really want to throw in two things. First, famously in that Heringstein experiment, uh, people complained just what you said that the birds fly around so they would know about trees. So he got the pigeons also to recognize scenes that had fish or not fish, uh, which the pigeons and everything. But no, my point was going to be, yeah, yeah, we don't know how this works, but I firmly believe that part of the story is going to be. What I've said earlier this this afternoon, the interaction of the young individual with the world. The the way we're going to recognize patterns that connect with each other is because they occur together in time or space, on and off during development, and parts of the brain are, I believe, wired in such a way as to respond to those connections. And that's what you cannot get by describing patterns uh, geometrically or, you know, with words. Uh, it's, it's all part of a, of a scene. And we know that we recall things in connection with uh, uh, stimuli that were part of that scene when we first saw that pattern that may be totally unrelated. Uh, You know, I recognize a certain Beethoven symphony because when I played the record years and years ago, there was a scratch at one point, and that scratch is in my brain at that point in the music, (laughs) and and that's how I know that with that. So, you know, it's the whole the whole surround, not just one thing, that makes patterns. Okay, I'll shut up. Uh, (coughs)
7: I'm Larry Amso. I'm actually a mathematically oriented psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. which is a relatively rare thing. In in Mm -hmm. 2003, I organized a the first symposium at the American Psychiatric on game theory and psychiatry, and it was roundly ridiculed. I just have to, you know, it and I were roundly ridiculed for this notion that game theory could be applicable to to psychiatry. so I've been thinking about these ideas for a long time, and I want to thank this panel for bringing this here. I think it's absolutely a fantastic and cutting edge uh, kind, kind, of, kind of discussion. I'd just like to say that if, if, if the hypothesis for today is whether or not the mind can be described by mathematics, I would consider the negation of that. I mean, if the mind cannot be discovered explained by mathematics, how could you possibly explain it? What other language are you going to propose to do it in? First of, of all, you're irreducibly a dualist if you, lang- <laughs> if you propose another yeah, language. If you propose another language, you're Irreducibly a dualist. A dualist. Second uh, of all, you're rejecting evolution because evolution is about maximization under competition, which is mathematically so- solve only a mathematically solvable problem. Um, and uh, third of all, you you would have to propose that there's some brain-dependent language that do a better job than mathematics, which I think is as close as we get to a brain-independent language.
5: Thank. you. I don't think we need any comments on that. I don't think anybody <laughs> will disagree <laughs> with that here. Well, I don't know. Maybe the philosophy.
9: <laughs>
5: okay. That's just, so um,
1: yeah. if the notion of statistical mechanics leads us to conclude that phenomenon like pressure emerge from the interaction of molecules, um, is it the prediction of the panel then that a complete physiological and uh, structural description of some neural system is going to then lead to the deduction that we have in front of us a, a cognitive system? In other words, Uh, Once the physical language of a system of neurons is described completely, do you think or is it the opinion of the group that we will then come to the conclusion that we've in in essence described the mechanism of cognition without being able to fully describe what cognition is? Perhaps this touches on the notion of consciousness versus not, but just let's say even from an information theoretic perspective, what are the thoughts of the panel?
4: Well, I I said something that's relevant to this earlier. The example of uh, the square peg in the round hole. Okay, so you could get an explanation of that, a, uh, quote explanation, in terms of the, ele- the elementary particle clouds, but it would just obscure the explanation that you can see in terms of geometry and rigidity. And you could add to it by explaining why those things that are rigid are rigid or what, when they would fail to be rigid, uh, but some explanations have an appropriate level that isn't illuminated from from below, and sometimes the what's below is so complicated that you have no hope of deducing the molar behavior from from what's below so I think we, we have to find the right level for any given
1: phenomenon that we're interested in is this in a sense become a sort of but that
5: doesn't answer his question which is will I mean will this emerge and will consciousness or cognition emerge from this this low level and I, I you know I think as reductionists or at least most of us as reductionists the answer has to be yes I don't know how that we'll have to ignore and and what course grading we have to do, but I don't see how we can't answer that question is yes
4: look if we're there's a distinction between being a physicalist which I am I don't think I don't believe in any soul that somehow interferes with the elementary particles there's a difference between being a physicalist and being a reductionist so you're a physicalist you think okay it's all just matter it's somehow got a, the you know consciousness and cognition have to come out of matter but that's different from thinking you're going to be able to take any explanation you get at the cognitive level and reduce it to an explanation in terms of the smallest items. That is a very adventurous controversial claim even for physicalists. Um, so that's why I keep saying it's the right. you have to find the right level.
6: Yeah. I guess the only thing I guess I would like to add is uh... well I don't
5: understand the alternative.
6: Well maybe the, the thing, I guess it's probably fair to say that uh, for very good reasons that neuroscience has been for a very long time focused on um, you know early sensory information processing and the motor behavior but it's becoming more and more you know common now that people feel like you can study the neuron biological mechanism uh, of cognitive processes, such as decision-making in a rigorous way. So uh, and that's a sea change in my mind. So many things that people thought were in the realm of psychologists are now really being studied uh, in a very cross-disciplinary fashion with, with uh, uh, cognitive psychologists and neurophysiologists and computational um, you know, theorists uh, working together to understand, really, the mechanism of even cognition. Say.
1: Uh, in you. answer to your comment, it seems that one of the aspirations then is to be able to come up with a descriptive mechanism to talk about very high dimensionality systems. In a sense, it's very, for any of us, it's very hard to do that in any discipline, it seems. And so, for such an perhaps the most exceptional high dimensionality system, it seems very hard to talk about any micro or macro phenomenon other than the physicality. From a CS person's point of view, it's hard to talk about. We can come up with dumb little models. It seems that logic itself has some problems with it, but uh, I'm just very curious as to what practicing neuroscientists think of this. Thank
3: you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think every mental entity has ultimately got to be understood as some, you know, in, in neural terms, and will be understood in neural terms, except maybe consciousness itself. You know, given all that this is going on, why do you have a sensation? I don't know that that ever can be answered. But um, uh, but but at least you know the the every every mental structure has a has a neural substrate ultimately, and that, you know I, that's an article of faith I think.
4: Yeah, but I would distinguish between has a neural sub- structure, is grounded in the, in the neural structure. That's on one side. The other side is can be understood. In terms of that neural structure, so there's a, a level of understanding. Where you can't always get more understanding by going to f- the smaller and smaller
5: no, parts. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. a no, no, thing no. To you avoid. work upwards. You work upwards. You get the little. guy to explain the next guy, and and so forth, and then you work. You know, I don't. I don't see why this is such a contradiction. Uh, you work downwards
4: too, no, I, and sometimes yeah. the downwards is better than the upwards. Yes.
5: Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> you know, you, but you, you know, you have to meet the two ends at some point. Yeah, I mean,
3: I mean, I think the point, you know, the point is that you're not going to describe the brain in terms of elementary particles, but it is ultimately made of them. You've got to, you've got to work at some intermediate level of structure to understand the next level of structure. Um, but, you know, the, we're going to understand structures made out of neurons to correspond to the structures of our
2: minds. Yeah. That's, that's what I believe. Maybe it's time to throw Penrose in here just briefly, right? Oh, there's because the, if we're there's physicalists you know, and, guy, and believe yeah. that it's all done with matter, still there's distinctions that we haven't made yet, and there are people who try very hard to bring in stuff that, that, you know, we can claim as physical, but we don't, it's so complicated, you know, you know quantum mechanical fluctuations in, in, in microtubules, in, in mm-hmm. neural, um, right. tamarous, still tamarous. Yeah. And, and so I think all of us believe that's probably wrong, and I think we can understand how it might be wrong just because of all the complexity of these levels that we've already talked about are enough to explain it, but that's an intuition, it's not a proof so you know that remains to be seen but it, it'll still be physical I, I i think that there's no argument go ahead
9: hi everyone yeah. and uh, first i i want to hear that uh, i love what you said today i'm sorry i'm um, sorry for the language that um i'm the kind of people who like to formalize life and whatever uh, even my speech uh, for example this is what why I was late tonight, because uh, I, my, for example, my husband speak um, in such, a, in, let's say, in a linear way, while why I I, like, I speak or think in three-dimensional way. <laughs> uh, I mean, I start, and I open a parenthesis, and I close, and I remember exactly where, where I opened it. Mm-hmm. And then I open another, and, and, and so and so on. And after the third parenthesis, he says, he, he's bored, but I know that <laughs> it's not bored. it depends on which people i'm talking with <laughs> i mean and and, and for example uh, yesterday i no two days ago uh, is that the new
0: parenthesis or is that your <laughs> sorry this is one
9: of the first parentheses. <laughs> sorry, <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> and um, two days ago i was let's say bored about uh, some online agendas because i couldn't put inside what I was thinking about. I mean, uh, also because my, my uh, email address was hacked twice, so I prefer to do something simple. And I, put, I start putting some sticky notes on the, on the mirror. Uh, look, OK, let's say the pink one for projects, the, the blue one for contacts and meetings, like this, and the yellow one for all the other stuff on in the internet I have to do right now of this. Mm. And the green one, something all about the, the, the pieces, which means, okay, you have to get up from your chair to get out. <laughs> and then I st- start to, to divide into columns and rows because I, I work for databases since 15 years ago. And 15 years Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah um, uh, and so I, in so initial in, in in sticky notes uh, I put a kind of bullet points. So I mean, sometimes I realize that my mind is like a database, and that's why I, I mean, that's why I love math, physics. Uh, for, for example, I remember when, uh, when I started physics, the first um, physics as a- After a while, I, I stared at all, all what I had all around uh, because everything happens, it uh, comes from a dynamic law. So even a pen falling down. Oh, well, I, I stared the pen because that pen was connected with this and this and this, so the world is full of math, physics, and whatever. And thank you for letting me know, understand better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. Thank you. Oh, uh, I want to tell <laughs> to the guy who is on uh, <laughs> Skype or whatever. He told about. Uh, I don't know his name. Sorry. Barge. Barge. Uh, anyway, for all of you, uh, he told about computers. The listening. Computers' behavior is the always the same. Starting from an input, you can have always the same output. Hmm. Well, this is about, uh, you can say, we can, talk, we can call them uh, deterministic algorithms, but in logic uh, there are also non-deterministic algorithms which are like this, something, something that can happen in different way, okay. in different, even the starting, let's say the starting point are the same, but it's hard to, to develop in a computer. That's it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
10: Um, so I was really interested by the uh, the idea. How, sorry, how um, you know, whatever type of unit we're talking about, uh, there there may be similar ones across the cortex. Um, I just was doing research in like cross modal stuff, and so I'm really interested in that. And and uh, I guess my question is just, you know, uh, do you think that? Even though we're talking about reproduction of units uh, in a biological way, uh, it, it may be just sort of the most efficient way of, you know, growing the brain through time. But there could also be this byproduct, which uh, you know contributes to our sort of unified uh, experience of the world, in, in the sense that these units are similar and therefore can maybe communicate through, you know, communicate to each other more easily. And I just wonder if any of you have anything to say about that. I mean, maybe that's confusing. Well, just the, the in the the idea that like uh, whatever unit you're talking about, they they are reproduced across the cortex, and does that? I mean, do you know if that has any? Does that have any effect on how easily they communicate to each other, and how something happening in the visual cortex can? Can be referred to something in the auditory cortex, or is it just really, um, you know, basically? That, anyways, I, I'll I'll stop. But I thought it was interesting. Um, yeah. I mean,
3: I should just say, I mean, there's 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 unity at a lot of levels. There's there's unity at the, you know, when you look at this one millimeter chunk, uh, that it you know it looks defer you know there, there's a lot of similarity no matter where you are in cortex. Uh, but there's also unity in, you know, a lot of sort of higher-level themes of yeah. how different, how the different chunks talk to each other across millimeters, yep. how one area talks to another area talks. and talks back, right. um, how they get their input from the thalamus and how they send loops through the basal ganglia. There's, so there's a lot of themes that are conserved across right. at, at you know many levels of the hierarchy. So it's, and. It's,
2: but, but we're still, it's, it's very early days for really figuring out what the hell that's all about. It might be useful to mention that just the basic mechanisms of communication are pretty much the same. I mean, there's a large number of neurotransmitters that have been identified, but there's a couple of major ones, you know, glutamate yeah. uh, and GABA. And, gamma. and um, th- those are used all over the brain, <laughs> so that allows a neurotransmitter <laughs> to communicate with another one. The, the other Minor transmitters modulate that activity, and they may act differently in different places to help produce the different types of, uh, you know, functionality that exists in those different places. But, but the overall scheme is is very, very much, the, you know, right. calcium uh, transmission through ion channels is the same everywhere. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, there's probably ten kinds of <laughs> calcium channels, but you know what I mean. It, right, it, right, it, right. It's, it's the it's the ion that that send signals. So um, that facilitates what you're asking about.
10: Right. I guess just to crystallize, my, my question is you know, if you have one unit over here and another unit over here and they're similarly structured, you know, the brain's whole, whole function is to communicate things to to different areas and so does that, I mean, since you guys know so much about this stuff, do, does that similarity in structure in different areas does it often facilitate the communication, or is that an unrelated thing? Is it just you know, oh, I oh, want to oh, hear the frequency? Yeah. And
5: I mean, you can I I, I can sort of I, I can sort of say I mean there 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 is there there are some theories that if one area doing something for example a famous theory is that if one area is oscillating at a particular rhythm that it's much be- it, it has a better chance of communicating right. with another area that has a similar type of oscillation. So I can say, you know, I don't know if that, I'm paraphrasing what you said there correctly or not, but, there, you know, that's a that, that's so-called binding theory. And um, there's there's other things like that. So yeah, I mean, guys that are similarly firing are more likely to to hook up together and, and, and communicate.
3: And there's a, one other thought I have is just I mean, so the, what, the the big commonality that you see is is this six layer structure of the cells. And although we don't know exactly what it means, it's clear that that sort of different kinds of input enter in different layers with different functions. So so-called Feed forward input comes into layer four top down input tends to come into layer one so we don't you know we don't understand what that's about but there is a commonality there which probably means that you know anybody who sends an input into layer one of somebody else uh, that has a certain meaning as opposed to sending it into layer four of somebody else so that's maybe along the lines of yeah, what you're yeah. thinking about that,
10: that is yeah that helps thank you yeah. okay thank you.
8: Just wanted to comment since I'm here at the mic. Um, the metaphor is another way that different parts of the brain communicate using this sensory language, like sharp cheese, loud shirt. You know, so you're getting it into play. My comment is about using um, mathematics to for physiology and vice versa. And the question is when the architecture of the brain starts to tweak a little bit, like in multiple sclerosis, you lose some myelin. In autism, you have um, shorter connections as opposed to the long connections in the brain, you have more white matter as opposed to um, gray matter. Um, in uh, dyslexia, you have sort of a neurological junk drawer of cells that aren't aligned. Can you use this in your model to infer what must be going on? You know, in other words, this is not working, and that helps your model to decide what does work?
3: Oh boy. I think ultimately, yes. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to sort of know enough you have to have enough of a model of that particular phenomena that you you then can begin to say, well, if I change this variable here, how is that going to change things? So, you know, if, if you're just completely in the dark, then obviously you're not going to get there yet. But um, I think in the long run, yes. Right, but,
8: you know, because the small yeah. changes give you small behavioral changes, especially yes. with demyeline. Well, well, that's not
5: necessarily true. Small changes don't always right, you know. mm-hmm. small small changes. Um, changes don't always give you small changes in behavior i mean the, the cortex is very parts of it are very tightly balanced and just small perturbations are enough to kick you into a wildly different area and that's why it's so hard to control it so but but yeah i think i agree with ken and i think ultimately we're going to be able to use you know theory and things to say like if what we do, we say, you know, if this happens, then why does this lead to this sort of broader um, you know, phenomenon? You know, if, if we, we wreck this neuron, why do we get this kind of behavior? And that's where theory is very helpful.
11: Um, directed initially at Ned. And of course, anyone else subsequent to that. Um, it's the, my question is focused on the uh, importance of the um, known differences between the predictive, uh, respectively, the pr- predictive and con- uh, confirmational. Values of a mathematical description of an observed system. Uh, case in point would be Ptolemaic cosmology. It was predictive in terms of the, the observed motions of stars and planets, but had nothing to do with the physical reality of what was being observed. You know, fixed shells uh, with planetoids and so on embedded as points of light. Uh, more to the context at hand, would be the uh, Blue Brain Project, where the the columnar stack has been modeled mathematically uh, so that there is some allegiance to the input-output signaling, but it says nothing about the physical structure, inherently about the physical structure of the columnar stack. So I wanted to ask Ned and others, is that um, important (laughs) um, to to a physicalist such as myself it is? Uh, But how important? Uh, to the value of a robust mathematical theory of the neocortex?
4: Well, uh, you know, there's a kind of platitudinous answer, um, which is, you know, this is a text, the Ptolemaic astronomy system is a textbook case of how um, prediction by curve-fitting isn't much use. Um, Prediction is impressive if you do it with a general theory. Um, So um, you know, the, the, the Copernican theory had a much better qualitative explanation, even though without adding in all that same extra stuff, it didn't do as well in prediction. So yeah, prediction is really important. It makes, gives you reason to believe that the, the, the theory that did the prediction is true, but um, it's no good if the way you got that whole s- system was just by sticking in all the, the, the data in it, uh, to begin with. Thank you. So, then, so then where
11: are we at with regards to a mathematical description of uh, neurophysiology in the same capacity? Is it necessary for, and this has been touched on uh, earlier in earlier questions and so on, but how critical is it that at some point, for example, with string theory, we don't know because we don't have the level, the technology to investigate that level of scale just yet. Maybe a 14 gig electron. Look, I think
4: think everybody would agree that we're in a very early days in neuroscience and um, we don't have a lot of the theoretical structure that will allow us to do the kind of explanation we want. We we don't even really know what the units are. Mm Uh, we don't have explanations of things like pattern recognition. You know, we can do we can do a lot. Uh, we can we can we, we, at certain levels we can we have a lot of predictive power. But I think we're nowhere near having a satisfactory account.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's there's Thank always you. sort of a tension between um, uh, you know the the details of your predictions and and sort of the. The, the extent to which you're getting the structure of things right. I mean, ultimately, what you're looking for is you want to really generalize. You, know, you want to predict something that, that wasn't what you put in to begin with. Uh, you know, and uh, the, the, you 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 want to be capturing a structure that gives you new insight into stuff that you, that wasn't what led you to start thinking about it. And you know, you're never in neurobiology right now. You're never going to get things quantitatively very precise because they're just. Too much stuff going on that you're not incorporating while you're trying to capture sort of some basic relationships. But 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 and yet you can make a lot of qualitative and to some extent quantitative predictions that you can, you know, that you can you can test and verify. But the you know what you really want is the insight that gives you, you know, that gets the structure right and so that you can generalize to new domains with it.
0: Go ahead.
2: From a different standpoint. I wonder if a more humanistic aspect of of people can be explained with the models that have been discussed and explained here. For example, (coughs) affect or emotion, why somebody will react to a particular event with joy, somebody else with sorrow, another person with anger, can any of this be explained or predicted on the basis either of a statistical mathematical model or a physicalistic
3: model? Not today, but someday. <laughs> thank
0: you. We will stop. We'll stop.
5: <laughs> but
2: why don't you
5: those? Oh. Um, <laughs> okay, thank you.
3: Yeah. Well, we don't, but, um, yeah.